This is Scott Billington on Talking Blues, and I'm here today to tell some stories from my book, which is called Making Tracks. It's about my 40-year career as a, as a music producer, mostly of American roots music from the South, uh, and especially in New Orleans, which is where I live today. mentioned New Orleans, the, the first thing that came to my mind when, when I read the first chapter and when you made your way to University of Arizona or to Arizona to attend university, you were headed towards New Orleans, but you, you didn't make it. You decided that it would be better to save your money. I'm curious what would have happened if you actually made it to New Orleans at the time. I don't know. And you know, my father actually had almost gotten transferred to New Orleans once working for the American Sugar Company. So there were a couple of times that I, I came close to getting there. The reason I didn't go to New Orleans when I was 17 years old and, and driving out to Arizona was my truck was in such terrible shape. I just didn't dare drive it an extra mile. <laughs> um, and after breaking down in, in, in the middle of the cotton fields outside of, of Greenwood, Mississippi, in summer 1969, um, miraculously getting my car fixed and getting back on the road again, I just decided I'd better get out to school as soon as I could. And, and I gave up on the idea of going to New Orleans then. It would have been wonderful, I'm sure. I just don't know if you would have made it to school if you had you gone to New Orleans at that point. I may not have. <laughs> so the, the other thing that comes across very strongly, very quickly in the book, is your love of music, but your love of records. Is that love still there? Oh, the absolutely. Sorry, as a record collector, are you, are you still collecting records? No, no, I don't. I don't collect records anymore. But I think the idea that a recording of music can reach someone as deeply as any other art form can, uh, and that would include live performance. I mean, if you go to hear uh, a live jazz performance, if you go to a ballet. Um, you can sometimes gain some insight in, in, into what makes life so beautiful. And I think the idea that you could do that with a record, I mean, a record is not a live performance. It's usually in the studio. Um, the fact that you're there and not in front of an audience changes the way the music is played, I think. But when everything comes together and you've got all these different colors that you can mix to just as if you're mixing paint in a way, you can come up with something that will, will move somebody and, and make them feel something very deep and hopefully that's enriching for them. And I, I was always intrigued with the idea of the record itself, of the sounds on the record, and, and even more importantly, how do you get that great performance, that transcendent performance that just reaches somebody on the other end, it, it's it's all electronics, and yet it's something that that can really speak to people. I've talked about this a few times before in the on the podcast, but it's not an easy thing to make a record, I would imagine. And we hear these brilliant albums, but but you know, as you outline in some of your stories, there are things. Some, sometimes it works really well, and you capture the magic, but there are times when you don't. Oh, that's absolutely true. Um, you can't just push a button and have even the greatest musicians automatically give their best. There has to be an environment that is comfortable, 
um, just from a technical perspective in their headphones, they have to be hearing something that inspires them to want to give their best, that makes them feel really confident in what they're doing. Some people operate on such a high level. Oh, I think of the singer Johnny Adams, for instance, he never gave a bad performance in the studio. And yet there was a level that he could reach when the music was just right, when the harmonies he was hearing inspired him to go someplace with his vocal that he might not otherwise go. And to put forth something with such feeling and emotion that it would give you chills being in the studio when he did that. There was a difference. I mean, he was never bad at all, but getting to that point where the studio goes away, the chemistry of all of the musicians who are playing together coalesces into something that's greater than any, any individual could do. Um, and even sometimes you go back and work on things. You may add a horn section to it. Um, you may go back and work on the vocals again and completely redo the vocals that are on a track. But um, for me, having the foundation of an inspiring performance as the core of the record is the place where I always want to start. Jimmy, if we go back, tell me about how you got into music and how you became a harmonica player. Okay. <laughs> I got into music at a pretty early age. Um, like so many other kids of my generation, I was a rock and roll fan. My mother gave me a, a harmonica in my Christmas stocking when I was 11 years old. She got it with a book of green stamps. It was stamps that they handed out at the grocery store and you could go trade them in for a toaster or whatever, but, but she got a harmonica. And I started playing along with records by Bob Dylan and, and things like that. Um, when I was 14 years old, my family moved from Arizona to New Jersey. I started going into the village and hearing different bands, Grateful Dead and, and Mothers of Invention at the Garrick Theater and the Fugs. But when I heard Paul Butterfield, it just completely blew my mind, like turned my whole life around. Um, my dad passed away that same year and my mom moved us back to Massachusetts, which was where her family was. And I just poured myself into playing the harmonica. Um, the blues bug really uh, bit me. I heard the J Junior Wells Hudeman blues record that the brother of a friend of mine had. And I, I started obsessively going after records then, hearing whatever I could. There's a wonderful uh, guy in Boston, Skippy White, and he, he's still with us. He had a record store when I was in high school in the, in the late 60s. And he was a, a great blues and gospel fan. And I would go there every Saturday afternoon when I got off my job as a stock boy at the, the factory where I was working. And he would turn me on to all these different artists that I, I might not have encountered at least that early in my life. People like Percy Mayfield. Um, it's kind of wonderful combination of jazz and blues and great lyrics. And some more down-home stuff, Elmore James and and the Accello records, Slim Harpo and Lonesome Sundown and so forth. So by the time I was a junior in high school, I'd gotten good enough to go get a gig with this couple that had moved to Boston from Austin, Texas, Mike Allen and Lana Petty. And, and um, I was playing at all of the folk clubs in Boston, the Sword and the Stone, Turk's Head, Unicorn. And uh, I went to college for one year driving out there to Arizona to go back to Arizona, where I spent some years growing up. But other than that, uh, I, it was just um, 
the blues and, and music that became my life and my career. And that's that's really all all I ever did after that point. I know that you played in bands a lot from your younger age, but did you ever consider that to be a career? Oh, yeah, that's what I thought was going to happen. So uh, I went to work for Rounder Records as a part time salesperson in 1975 or 76. Um, I, I was working at a record store at the time and playing in bands and I couldn't work in the record store anymore just because the band started touring and I couldn't hold down that full-time schedule. Um, so when I took the job with Rounder Records, it was just to make a little money to, to um, I had a daughter, I, I, you know, I had some responsibilities and I thought that, that was just going to supplement my income while I while I kept playing music. I was playing in a swing band called Roseland at the time, playing chromatic harmonica and, and harmonica. But little by little, the rounder job just opened up into something bigger than I ever thought it would be. I, I was certainly attracted to the music that Rounder Records represented. That's why I went to work there. Um, I'd had some inclination of what a record producer did at the time. I think I had dreams of producing records when I was 15 or 16 years old. And all of a sudden that opportunity began to present itself at Rounder Records. Um, the, the first thing I did there was an album by Johnny Shines. A few years earlier, I'd been a part of the Boston Blues Society. It was a, a group of six or seven friends, Dick Waterman, who, who just passed away this this, this past <laughs> week, um, Peter Goralnik, Erica Brady, Bird Gessner, and we'd put on concerts in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, often they were the survivors of the original first first generation of blues players. Um, people like Skip James or Sun House, um, some slightly younger artists like Johnny Shines, uh, Roosevelt Sykes, Little Brother Montgomery. They, they would come to, to Cambridge and play for these adoring audiences, you could just hear a pin drop when they were playing. It was a very kind of respectful environment. Certainly, certainly the uh, antithesis of what they might have been, been accustomed to in the, in the music and performing it when they were younger. Um, and we had an album of tapes by Johnny Shines that was a really good, wonderful performance. So Peter Goralnik, the, the great writer of uh, American Roots Music and I went to Rounder and said, okay, we'd like to put out this record. And they said, great, and, and we did. He wrote the notes, I designed the cover and we edited the thing together. Um, it had been recorded by another, one of the members of the Boston Blues Society, Dirk Gessner. And uh, that led to more recordings in the studio with, with Johnny Shines and Robert Jr. Lockwood. Um, I made a record with Sleepy Labeef who had relocated to New England after his bus burned up on the main turnpike. Uh, I had started playing in his band. And um, it was a very organic process. And I, I really still look back at that and think, man, you were the, I was just the luckiest guy in the world to have been in that environment at that particular time and have this opportunity to present itself. And it just kept going from there. I, I presume it kept going because you were good at what you did. But I, w I wondered, um, as a musician, how much studio experience had you had before you started working with artists from Rounder? I had very little experience in the studio before I went, went to work for Rounder and started working with those artists. Um, 
one of the bands I was in had made a couple of records and I guess I was sort of the producer of those sessions, but it was really learning on the job. And I realized right away that I needed to learn a little bit more about how the studio worked. Um, particularly when some of the records that I made, I really didn't like the way they sounded. Uh, we made a wonderful record with Sleepy Labeef called Electricity. Um, but the engineer at the time had this kind of 70s drum sound where you would EQ the kick drum so it sounded like another snare. It, it just sounded very kind of artificial and small. It didn't do service to the, to the performances on the record at all. And um, I've never really become a recording engineer by any stretch of the imagination, but I've certainly learned enough and I've learned enough to appreciate a really great engineer. And for most of my career now, I've worked with just a couple of different engineers, David Farrell, Steve Reynolds, and, and many others too. But um, it's knowledge that I think someone who makes records need to needs to have. You can't, can't just go in there with a concept of what the music should be. You have to also understand how the music should be recorded and understand the processes that you can manip manipulate the music after it's recorded to, to sound any number of different ways. And, um, but it was definitely learning on the job. Today, you can go to full sale. There's all these different recording schools where somebody can actually learn this. I've actually taught record production at Loyola University in New Orleans now, and they have a great engineering program there as well. So there are, there, there are better opportunities for somebody who's young, who wants to learn about uh, the technology and, and engineering today than there were when I, when I was starting out. I would presume that most of my audience would know this, but for those who might not know, how would you describe Rounder Records and what its mission was or what its goal was? Rounder Records was founded by three friends who shared a passion for traditional American music. At the time, uh, that meant to them old time music and bluegrass in particular. Um, there was also some blues in there. They, they modeled their label to a degree on Folkways Records, which was sign of this sort of this omnivorous um, label that recorded all kinds of things that nobody else would record. Um, and a lot of American folk music along the way, um, Lead Belly and Elizabeth Cotton and, um, oh, just on and on and on. I think they had three or 4,000 albums in their catalog at one point. But along the way, the, the, the three founders of Rounder, Ken Irwin, Marion Layton, and Bill Nowlin, developed this aesthetic. We used to just call it the Rounder Way. It was music that was rooted in different communities. It could be blues, it could be music from any other part of the world. We put out a lot of African music at one point. And um, it could be a, a contemporary expression of that, but it kind of had to have roots. It had to be something that, that came from community rather than something that was constructed just as kind of a commercial entity. I think that might be a good way to put it. Um, Ironically, some of those records that we made just because we liked them turned out to be commercial successes too. And I, I think um, when someone listens to a record and hears a song that they could relate to, but also maybe some uh, roots that, that 
come from a, a community where people danced to it, where this was something that wasn't just a commercial product, but something that was part of community, I think it can have a, a deep, deeper significance for some listeners when it, when it comes from that, that space and that place. I know you've had a lot of success with, with the albums that you produce, but how did they, how did Rounder in general measure success? Was it about sales? Was it about something else? Rounder's success, I, I don't think, was ever measured in sales, at least um, specifically. We had to sell enough records to keep going, but that was never taken into consideration when we decided who we were going to work with. And um, I think the Rounder artist that people are probably most familiar with is Alison Krauss. And Ken Irwin, one of the founders of Rounder, had gotten a cassette tape of a, of a band that she was in, and he was kind of watching where she was going when she was 13 or 14 years old. And she was sort of a championship fiddler. Nobody had any idea at the time that she was going to become the transformative artist in bluegrass for the 80s and 90s into the 2000s. I mean, she completely transformed it, and nobody had any idea that she could sing like that either. So it came from this very organic place that signing and George Thurgood and the Destroyers that was kind of the same story there was a, a bus driver named John Forward who was a big George Thurgood fan and he kept coming to the rounder headquarters and say look you got to sign this guy I mean he's, he's incredible and we all went to see him and said yeah this is this is wonderful music but I think for the three founders they struggled with rock and roll as being a part of their vision of this uh, roots traditional music Ultimately, it seemed to fit in pretty well. And, and George, of course, was a really big success for Rounder. I wonder, in the case of George Thorogood, when you have success like that, um, like his al first album did quite well. Uh, I presume his second al album did even better. But does that, for a small label, that could dest not destroy, but that could affect a small label greatly, could it not? Yeah, George, the success of George Thurgood almost put Rounder out of business. The records were selling really, really well uh, through a network of independent distributors all over the country. There are probably 15 independent distributors. So if you wanted to sell records in the Northwest, you went to a, a distributor in Seattle. Um, there was one in Texas. There was one in New Orleans. Just and And any record company was lucky if these independent distributors paid their bills in, in 60 or 90 days, and sometimes they took longer than that. And really the only way to get paid on time was to have something else that they wanted. In the meantime, the pressing plants weren't gonna give this bunch of hippies any kind of credit. They wanted to be paid in 30 days. The album cover printers wanted to be paid in 30 days. Um, no bank would give give Rounder any money, and some, somehow the company squeaked through there and managed to keep the flow of records going, maybe not as efficiently as it might have, and ultimately that led to a decision to sign George to EMI Records because he'd, he'd gotten so big that it didn't seem that Rounder could really do the job anymore in terms of keeping the records in the stores and radio promotion and all of that. Later on, Rounder got big enough and had hired some people over from major labels that it was able to do that. So when the Robert Plant and Alison Krauss record called Raising Sand came out, there was a 
very focused marketing campaign. Distribution was now through Universal, so it got into all of the stores and, and ultimately Rounder was able to be a full service record company, but that was not what the company set out to be when it, when it, was, when it was young. And in, in its earlier days, you also dabbled in graphic design and became a designer of album covers. Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, everybody did whatever needed to be done. So I, I did a lot of writing too. I would write the album profiles and the ad copy. And um, I probably designed three or 400 album covers, maybe more than that. I don't know for Rounder over the years. Um, and really got into desktop publishing in, in its early days. There was another designer there and she and I just jumped into that way before most anybody else did. And, and of course, it was a much more efficient way to make artwork back then too. So, um, but you know, I still do that. Um, my wife is a children's musician, Johnette Downing. And um, we've been working together on her books and, and videos and so forth. So it's something I still enjoy doing quite a bit, the, the design. Well, it's amazing how, you know, your love of music and your love of records and your connection with a record company or record store turns into a connection with a record company. You work for a record company and, and all the things that you do for that record company. I, I wonder, once you started producing and you said it was a learning process, at what point did you feel like you knew what you were doing? I, I don't know if I, if I know that today. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean... It's, um, <laughs> you know, you kind of have a vision for what you want the record to be. Um, I try not to be too rigid in that because you want to leave room for surprises when, when something unexpected happens that just is, is really fantastic. And um, I think I've gradually just learned enough about the technical aspects of it to operate on a fairly high level when it comes to the recording quality of the records, but also so much of it has to do with just putting together the right team. So working with a singer, maybe Ruth Brown or, or Solomon Burke um, or Johnny Adams and thinking about the repertoire that we're going to record, thinking about what makes each artist get excited, what kind of music they want to listen to and then putting together the musicians who would be on the record you want a team of people who are really going to want to be there and be selfless in the way that they're going to support the artist so there's no egos there and everybody just working toward this one goal of trying to make the artist sound great and um yeah, I think I reached a point, especially working with musicians in New Orleans, where I could deliver a fairly high quality recording. And each artist, of course, was different. There's a different psychological thing that has to happen with each artist. But I definitely got more confident in my ability to do that over the years. And it got to the point where artists would want to work with me because they could hear that kind of thing in some of the records that I made and they, they wanted that um, freedom to be themselves in a way, I think, and have that support behind them. With all the albums that you've done and you've worked with some great musicians and, and you mentioned how you, you need to put together a great team behind them, whether it be the engineering team 
or the, the side musicians that you hire. You also have worked with great songwriters. That knowledge of good songwriters and good musicians, does that come from you being a, a good musician? I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely have um, worked on my ear over the years. One of the greatest things I ever did in terms of my career was I took an ear training course with a guy named Rand Blake at the New England Conservatory of Music. He actually gave me private lessons. He was the head of what they called the third stream department there, which is sort of jazz and classical fusion. And every week I would have to learn melodies that I could sing or play or, or whatever. And I think having a, a quick ear that can can hear what's going on, sing it back, sometimes play it back, but usually sing it back in the moment is, is a very valuable skill to have. So I think from being a musician, um, that part of what I do is, is definitely a, a, an asset. It's a, it's a skill that's worth developing. Any, anybody can do it too, uh, developing their ear. But um, when I started looking for songs for artists, at first I was a little shy. It's like, yeah, Dan Penn, man, he writes some great songs. Um, and I found that when I went to almost any songwriter, um, no matter how famous they were or what kind of hits, they, they would always send me songs. And it's like, I learned later that, that songwriters, when they have a, a, a great singer out there who could possibly interpret their song, they've got a song that may end up on a record. I mean, this is, this is their income. So of course they're gonna send me something. At first it might not be the best song they've ever written, but then I, I develop relationships with a great many writers over the years who I could then depend on to, to send me songs when I had a new project. We would talk about the direction of the record and who the singer was and so forth. Um, I think the best story I have in that regard is one that involves Dan Penn. Dan wrote songs like uh, Dark End of the Street. He wrote Cry Like a Baby for the Box Tops, uh, Do Right Man, Do Right Woman for Aretha. And he's still writing today. He's just a wonderful writer. Um, but I was going to make an, a, a Hammond organ combo record with Johnny Adams. And we had gotten Dr. Lonnie Smith, the, the, the great wizard of the Hammond B3 organ, uh, Jimmy Ponder on guitar, Shannon Powell from New Orleans played drums, Ed Peterson on sax. And there is kind of a classic organ combo sound. You think of Jimmy Smith or Brother Jack McDuff, a very, very bluesy Hammond organ uh, genre. And I, I talked to Dan and, and told him this, this is what we're going to do. And I said, well, it's kind of like one foot in blue, one foot in the blues and one foot in jazz. He says, okay, I, I hear you, I got it. And about three weeks later, later, I got a cassette in the mail of a song called One Foot in the Blues with a note saying, well, I got half of it for you. And uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful song that, that Johnny really loved. And Dan also appreciated Johnny as a singer because Johnny had a great respect for the melody, the way that the songwriter wrote it, and a great respect for the story and the lyrics. Um, and, um, you know, all those things are important in a song. Um, if you can have a song that's specifically tailored to the artist that you're recording, it's, it's all, all the much better. Do you remember a time, I, I don't know if your first Grammy win would have changed things for you, but 
do you remember a recording that might have changed things? And you said there, were, they can't, there came a time when artists will come and approach you because they like what you had done on a previous recording. Was there an album like that that kind of changed everything for you? Winning a Grammy with Clarence Gatemouth Brown in 1982 was a big deal, although I really didn't think it was at the time. Um, the night that the, the Grammy was announced, I was actually out playing a gig with Sleepy LaBeef and somebody came up between sets and said, man, I think your record just won a Grammy. And, um, but it was at that session, and that was my first session in Louisiana too, at Studio in the Country in Bogalusa. I met the engineer, David Farrell, and I made so many connections with different musicians on that session. Alvin Red Tyler, the sax player, Another sax player, Bill Samuel, who worked as an arranger on many records that I made. And um, knowing one person led to knowing another person. And that was a very pivotal record for me, just in terms of building relationships. It won a Grammy. And and I think, yeah, some people were like, well, that's really cool. You know, we want to work with you. We want to win a Grammy. But more than that, I, I think it just established a window into a world that I could now be a part of and a, a, a network of musicians that I would tap time and time again over the years. And um, that record, it, it sounded good. It, it was a, um, yeah, it, it was a really good record. And, uh, and having that come out and win a Grammy, it, 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 it did change things. And I didn't realize it so much at the time, as I said, but, but later on, I can see that it did because it just led to one thing after another. It's interesting that you, you didn't really think of it like a big deal, <laughs> that you wouldn't even think about going to the Grammys to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, you think about what a legendary performer and a person Gatemouth Brown was and to provide that opportunity because maybe he would have never thought that he would win a Grammy. Yeah, maybe at the time he might not have. Um, And it was an interesting decision in terms of the kind of record that we'd made too, because in the late 40s, early 50s, he made some really great records for um, Duke Records in Houston kind of big band blues, very, very, um, very arranged records with this just wild guitar, um, virtuosic guitar over the top of these swinging grooves and, and really tightly arranged horns. And he clearly loved that. He also played fiddle. He, he had a lot of country music in his background. A few years before our record, he'd made a record with a band called Louisiana LaRue, mostly instrumentals playing playing guitar and fiddle. And he ended up on Hee Haw. He was a good friend of Roy Clark, the guitar player, another virtuoso musician. And the two of them often performed together on television, either gate playing fiddle or guitar. And they made a record together. So this decision made in, in concert with Gatemouth and his manager, Jim Bateman, to make a record that brought him back a little more into the blues realm, but with this very kind of sophisticated big band kicking him along, um, that that worked. I mean, thinking of the direction of the record that you're going to make with somebody like Gatemouth, there's so many singers that there were just so many directions you could go. So 
having a concept like that and then going for it and then executing it fairly well, it, it changed his career. And I think that was where most of his records went in, in the in the years after that too. Um, I, it was interesting too because Gate did not want to be stereotyped as a blues musician at all, and he wasn't. He was very sensitive about that. Yeah, he really was. <laughs> no, I tell the story in the book that, um, you know, here we are. We're going to make a blues record with Gatemouth Brown, and then I get I get to Louisiana and I meet him for the first time, and it's like, well, this guy doesn't even want me to say blues around him. So, <laughs> um, but it was just one of the things he did well. He knew he did it well, and he, of course, he he didn't really. Um, not want to play the blues he just resented the stereotype speaking of bluesmen and, and grammys I, I don't know if it was the last grammy you won but the grammy you won with the amazing bobby rush oh yeah man <laughs> and, and somebody who's put in you know his due he's played for years and years and probably i mean he's really well respected in the blues community but probably not as much as he should be um and working with him too record a Grammy nominated or Grammy winning album is is pretty impressive. <laughs> well, that was a dream come true. And it was a dream session. I, I got to say that none of that was was hard work. No matter how hard we worked, it wasn't hard work. And he and I had met probably 25 or 30 years earlier, um, coincidentally at a Grammy event. And we stayed in touch over the years, I would go see him whenever I could. And at one point, Marion Layton at Rounder wanted to sign him to Rounder, but he was like, no, no, you know, he had his own label. Um, he was performing for primarily African-American audiences in the South, and he really had his connections together there. Bobby's a pretty smart businessman as, as well as a musician. And when we finally worked together, I think he saw that it was his time to reach out into the world a little bit more, partly because that, you know, they called it the Chitlin circuit, this circuit of nightclubs that catered to an African-American audience, it was kind of going away too. And Bobby had reached the age too, where he truly was a, a legacy musician. Um, even today, he's almost 90 years old, and he's still an incredibly vigorous performer, very witty person. Uh, not just, there just aren't too many people from that generation left that can do it on the level that he does it. And he's always had an incredibly entertaining show, too. So, you know, when we made the record together, I, I didn't want to lose the raunch, I guess I would say, and I say that is something very positive too, because <clears throat> when Bobby does something raunchy, <clears throat> it's always done with a great sense of humor and a great sense of humility too. And, and it's entertaining. I mean, nobody can walk away from a Bobby Rush show without, without a smile on their face. But at the same time, many of his records he had made with program tracks or a sound that I think might have been becoming a little bit dated, uh, an 80s kind of R&B sound on his records. So I wanted to record him with a really great band live in the studio and do it in New Orleans. 
Another dream I'd always had was to use Kirk Joseph, the sousaphone player for the Dirty Dozen Brass Band, just as a bass player. I mean, forget that he's in a brass band, forget that he's playing sousaphone. Just think of him as a guy that plays the bass because he's a great bass player. And we had Jeffrey Alexander, Jelly Bean on drums, Cornell Williams on bass, David Torkanowski on keys. Just an, an, an amazing an amazing band in the studio, Vastai Jackson on guitar, who had, had worked with um, with Bobby on a number of projects over the years. And um, and Shane Terrio as well, no? Oh, Shane Terrio on guitar. Yeah, sorry, I left Shane out. Yeah, yeah. And boy, Shane and Vastai together, it, it was like they were one mind, the guitar parts that they that they worked out. And it, it again, it, it, it seemed fairly effortless at the time. It was just also natural for everybody to be there playing this music together. And um, we worked quite quite a long time on developing the, the material for that record. We wanted the songs to be as strong as they could. And um, Jeff Albert arranged the horns on that record. We did the, the horns in New Orleans, um, all great players. Yeah, lo and behold, it won, it won Bobby's first Grammy after some 60 years in the business. It was a... A wonderful thing to be there. I was there for that one, too. I, I didn't want to miss that. <laughs> I wonder, as a kid who was so into Junior Wells' Hoodoo Man Blues, somebody who got into the, the blues scene in Boston, got a chance to go on stage and play with the great Muddy Waters on <laughs> yeah. a Sunday afternoon jam. <laughs> I wonder how your view of the blues has changed over the years. That's a good question. You know, musically, blues is a relatively simple form. The chord changes, um, the nature of the first line repeating, and then a third line that comes along in each verse to wrap up the thought in those in those in the first line, and um, the greatest blues performers which I think would include Bobby Rush or Gatemouth Brown or Muddy Waters or Elmore James or Ruth Brown. Their force of personality was just so persuasive and so beautiful and strong that this relatively simple form blossomed into something huge that just brought in the whole world. Everybody loved this music. And... Um, it was so much about the individuals making the music and how personal they could make it, how, how that simple form could be some, become so distinctive in, in each of these individuals' minds and, and the way they express themselves. And of course, it was music that, like so many other kinds of American music, was a fusion of all kinds of influences. I mean, it, it, it's you kind of want to say that blues came from Mississippi and it had must have had some sort of uh, antecedent in, in what people brought from Africa or the Caribbean or whatever, but it's such a unique American form at the end of the day and brought about rock and roll and so forth. But I, I wonder today where it's going to go. Um, it's, um, it's music that was rooted in a particular time that expressed something really important for a number of people I think that's a challenge in making that kind of record today too. It's certainly a challenge we had with Bobby's record. How do we make something that's going to be 
completely fresh. And I also had the, the experience not soon after that of working with Samantha Fish on a record too. And I feel like she's, she's one of the young artists now who's got that kind of force of personality and, and um, focus to take this form and make it into something that continues to speak to people. It worries me that it's, it's become less about the song and more about the solo. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And that's, that's a really good point, because to me, blues has always been about the vocals, the singing, the ability of somebody to tell a story that the person on the other end of that loudspeaker, the radio, or whatever, is, is going to understand that story and think, wow, they're talking about me. I understand that. And um, yeah, it's, um, I mean, you can think of blues as boogie music, as party music, as guitar solos, or, um, but yeah, that, that, that is not what the music has been about to me over the years. And, and I'm still focused on the song and the singer and the story. Going back to your book, Making Tracks, tell me how you decided to go about writing it. How did that idea come about? I had written the story on Solomon Burke about 10 years ago. It almost got published in the Oxford American. Then they changed editors and a bunch of stuff happened and it just never, never came out. My wife just kept telling me, you know, you've got to write down these stories. Now, maybe she'd have heard them a few too many times, too, and just wanted me to get them out of my system. But no, I mean, her encouragement really kept me going and said, OK, you know, I'm going to do this. And I, I wrote the story on Johnny Adams that's in the book. I sent those to University Press of Mississippi, and they said, OK, go ahead. And they gave me a deadline. And then the pandemic happened. And um, this was my my therapy during the pandemic, I guess, was to write this book. Johnette was my first editor reading as I was going and saying, well, now you tell a little bit more about this. It's, 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 you shouldn't let that story go by so fast or whatever. It was about a two year process to write the book. It was very enjoyable. It, it was difficult in some ways. Um, I think my memory is still pretty good, but I, I came to appreciate writing as an exercise in, in telling the truth. Um, it's easy to, to want to tell stories and try to put a little gloss on them sometimes, or tell them in slightly a slightly different way than they may have happened. And I, I tried not to do that. I tried to be as honest as I could with myself with, with, with what I could remember. Um, I also tried not to um, say negative things. I didn't think there was much point in that. Sometimes I think you can read between the lines in the book and see that something was really difficult. Um, but I, I didn't want to dwell on that part either. What did you learn about yourself in the process? I think I learned about myself that I was maybe a little more driven than I than I would have thought, especially when I was younger. Um, it just sort of almost willing some of these records to, to happen <laughs> and, and you know doing I would put everything in my life on hold to try to make these records work um, in terms of giving giving my, my very best attention to them. I mean it's, it's a ridiculous number of albums that you were involved in <laughs> and the people you got to work with. Um, was there anybody that you felt really out of your comfort zone? Like something that was very different from maybe the blues that you were used to listening to. Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've gotten some work over the years. Um, 
now working with the Klezmer Conservatory Band in Boston. I, I love the music. I love the musicians. Uh, the director of the band, Hank Osnetsky, is a, is a probably world authority on Klezmer music, both new compositions and old things. But I, I felt a little bit of a fish out of water there, although they hired me again after I'd done one just because I was able to keep things organized and moving. I also made a couple of records with Tabule Rochereau, who was one of the great Sukus artists. My friend David Garr was booking him and the band had come to live in the US. Now they're from Zaire or today Democratic Republic of the Congo after Mobuto Sese Seko had lost control of Zaire. The dictator had left the country. A lot of musicians left too. They went to France, they came to the US. So I found myself in a position of making two records with Taboulet. Now he was one of the greatest pan-African stars of the 60s and 70s, especially, not just in one country, but he, he, he pretty much covered the continent. So in a sense, he was um, as iconic as anybody I've worked with over the years. But again, I kept things rolling and I really enjoyed what I learned about the music. But I think today I, I probably would have said, no, nah, man, I think somebody who was a little more into that music should have made those records and, and not me. Although they, they, they both came out quite well. So, Any surprises from what you've worked on? Like something that you thought would do way better or wouldn't do as well? Hmm. Well, James Booker, the New Orleans piano player, has um, his reputation has gained in stature, I think, every year since his death in 1983. I made a very modest record with him in 1983, the year he died. He was probably one of the greatest musicians of the, of the last century. His technical ability, his imagination um, died at the age of 43. Uh, the record was a nightmare to make. It was um, a, a puzzle. It, it, uh, you know, I, I, I look back at it now and, and, and think it was a miracle that, that we actually got enough music on tape to make a record. I, I didn't sleep for, for several days <laughs> during those sessions just trying to figure out what to do. I mean, ultimately, he came to the studio and he played some really great stuff. I mean, I think I got the impression that the last day of the studio recording was the day that made or break the album, right? Yes, it was for sure. And when he passed away, there was no second line for him. His funeral was just kind of a depressing affair in New Orleans. And his family, he was kind of an outcast to his family, I think. And, um, and now you see his picture on t-shirts and on murals in New Orleans, and he's just so venerated. It's been interesting to see that happen. I mean, I, I, he was like the Van Gogh of New Orleans. I think I, I said that in my book, where just so underappreciated when he was alive. And every year, I mean, there's this beautiful five CD box set just came out of some concerts that he'd made in East Germany um, in the 70s. And just mind-blowingly great. A man who just made two two studio records during during his lifetime. And there, there were also a few disappointments. I think Dalton Reed, who was a singer from Lafayette, Louisiana, 
just a sweet, sweet person, very hard worker, um, with a great voice and just a great aesthetic when it came to song interpretation. There was a record that I made with him called Willing and Able. I think it was probably the best single collection of songs that I ever put together for an artist and um, wonderful band. He got a gig at Jazz Fest after we made that record. And then right when it seemed like, okay, Dalton is not going to be a full-time welder anymore. He's going to have a career as a musician. He, he had a heart attack and died. And that, that was such a great, great disappointment because he was such a promising artist and a really wonderful human being to work with. Wow. Tell me about your music. You, you said you alluded to the fact that you work with your wife. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. In children's music. Um, tell me about that a little bit. Well, I'm just her side man. We just had a gig this morning, actually. Um, <laughs> Playing at the uh, Jazz National Historical Park here in New Orleans. And she's been playing children's music now for 35 years. It's got a very Louisiana roots music orientation. Um, so it's been it's been really fun working with her and making records with her. We've just embarked on a new project with Nathan Williams of Nathan and the Zydeco Cha-Chas. It's going to be a Zydeco for Kids record with John, Ed, and Nathan fronting the band. Zydeco is also something that you played a big part in. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your relationship with Zydeco music. I guess it all came from hearing Buckwheat Zydeco in 1982 at Jazz Fest in New Orleans. Um, I was familiar with Clifton Chenera. I had some of those records. Clifton is still regarded today as the king of Zydeco. He played a piano accordion. Um, he would say about himself that he was a blues man. He was just a blues man with an accordion. And if you listen to some of his early records, that's, that's exactly what he was doing. But um, hearing him at Jazz Fest was just sort of mind blowing because he had a band that reminded me of James Brown's band. I mean, they would just stop and start on a dime, very dynamic. And he was playing some traditional material, but he had, he had modernized it, um, made it faster and put, put some energy in it that I just hadn't heard before. And I just, called his manager out of the blue and, and went out to see him at a gig at Richard's club in Lottel a, a few weeks later. And he was all excited about making a record for a national label. So we made two really good records together. We actually did them in Massachusetts when he was on tour. It was through Buckwheat that I met so many other people in South Louisiana. I just kind of became part of that scene Nathan Williams, Nathan and the Zydeco Chachas, who we're working with now, um, Bojak and the Zydeco High Rollers, that, that was one of the greatest experiences of my career, working with Bojak. And um, it, it, it was forward-looking in the same way that Buckwheat's music was forward-looking, but Buckwheat was coming more from an old-school R&B standpoint. Bojak, Andres Esprit was his name, was coming from a, a hip hop Santana and war the things he listened to when he was in, in high school and put together just one of the funkiest bands on the planet. I mean, it, it, hearing Bojack in the early 90s 
at Richard's Club or at a at a chemical plant dance in Port Arthur, Texas, or wherever. It was just mind-blowingly great groove music. And we made five records together, had a big hit in South Louisiana with a song called Give Him Cornbread, ended up on the David Letterman show and on Conan O'Brien. Um, I went with him to both of those. And it, it I mean, even if, if you think today, would you ever see a Zydeco band on late night television? I'm not sure you would anymore, but um, back then it happened and it was just a, he was a very, very talented guy. Again, he died way too young. He was in his 40s when he died. I wonder, having had that experience of exposing people to roots music of all kinds, I'm not sure, especially with post-pandemic, the way the music world has changed I don't know if that same opportunity is there anymore. Do you worry about that in terms of all the great music out there that just maybe will not be recorded properly, will not be heard properly? Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, the record business has changed so much. Um, it used to be that we could put together a budget of 20 or $25,000 to make a simple record. All the musicians would get paid. If we had hotels or anything like that, we would go to a really good recording studio, work with a great engineer. A photographer would be hired for the album cover artwork, a mastering engineer. I mean, a lot of my records were mastered um, by a guy named Tom Coyne in New York, either at Frankfurt Wayne or Sterling Sound or, um, gateway um, in, in Portland, Maine, These, you know, all very, very skilled people along the way who were paid well and delivered something on a very high level. Today, as Idaho Band is basically going to have to pay for their own record and put it out themselves, maybe press up a few CDs to sell on the road. Streaming income does mean something. I mean, if you get a lot of streams, you'll make some money. It's not like it's nothing. But that infrastructure that existed to support Roots Music, where it's not just the musician doing it themselves, is, is pretty much gone, un unless you can get a grant or, you know, Smithsonian Folkways or, or a label like that to do it. I also read a very interesting article in the New York Times, maybe six or eight months ago, and I wish I could remember the author's name, but it was basically talking about, and this is sort of hyperbole, but the end of creativity that if you think of, for instance, the, the whole journey that blues took over a century from acoustic music that had a very regional nature, the blues that was made in Mississippi sounded different from that in Texas or that was made in Georgia. Same time the big bands are coming in and jazz and you get this kind of early jazz and blues fusion with somebody like Bessie Smith who was playing with jazz musicians with Louis Armstrong on one thing, or Jimmy Rogers playing with Louis Armstrong. You get on up to before World War II when this bluebird sound is starting to come together, a band sound in Chicago where you have Tampa Red or uh, playing in a more urban setting or the first Sonny Bo Williamson. People started playing electric guitars in the 50s and amplifying the music. So you got Little Walter and Muddy Waters. There's T-Bone Walker with his very sophisticated kind of jump blues with a horn section. It gets into funk. You can just see this 
evolution where the music just keeps going someplace new all the time. And as it's new, it's still relating to a contemporary audience, to, to an audience that really sees themselves in this music. And this article was making the point, well, now everything is just sampled from the past. Now, there's certainly many creative musicians out there who are doing wonderful things, often not very well known, but if you look at popular music now, even hip hop, it's, it's often referencing something that happened 30 years ago, rather than actually going on this trajectory that's reflecting where people are today. So that, that really had an impact on me thinking about that and how making Zydeco records, for instance, we were still on that trajectory of going somewhere with it. Interesting and, and somewhat sad. <laughs> um, I, I should finish off, but let me ask you one final question about your relationship with the city that you live in. Um, you know, I, I, I wonder, like, as I said in the very beginning, what would have happened if you didn't make it to college, you, you went up in New Orleans at that point. But obviously it was, you, you two were destined um, through, mainly I presume from the music that you love and, and the musical culture of that city. But tell me about that relationship between you and New Orleans. New Orleans was a city that just drew me in. I came here first in the late 70s to visit some friends from Massachusetts who had moved down here and um, heard James Booker, heard Johnny Adams, all of this music that was mind-blowingly good that, that didn't seem to be leaving the city at all. You had to come here if you wanted to, to hear it. And for the next 25 or so years, I lived here about half the time. Rounder Records had an apartment here. And Johnette and I got married 11 years ago. And I've, I've been living here most of the time since then with her. But New Orleans is, has, in spite of the uh, issues with crime, with some of the kind of derelict neighborhoods that never quite made it back after Hurricane Katrina, and, oh, I don't know, just the, the problems that any other urban place would be, this is still a really authentic place. And many of the root sources that have nourished New Orleans music over the years, whether you think about Louis Armstrong or, or the music that Alan Toussaint tapped as, as the groove components of those wonderful songs that he wrote, uh, the brass bands, the, the Mardi Gras Indians or black masking Indians they, they say now, uh, the gospel music, just the sensibility of movement and, and the way that people speak, it's, it's all still here. It's a it's a unique place in, in, in that in that regard. Um, I mean, I still feel like yeah, I'm a, I'm I'm a Bostonian, but I really do appreciate everything here so much. My wife is a native New Orleanian, and um, it's uh, the the music here perseveres in 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 the face of I don't know an overall culture that may not be so supportive of it anymore. Um, I think a lot of people thought that the culture was going to be destroyed after Katrina. If anything, it came back with more force. And um, the city's also become a magnet for young traditional jazz musicians. That's a, a, a form of music that's sort of been rejuvenated over the past 10 or 20 years that I, I'm not sure anybody would have expected to, to see. You know, like I said, it's still not easy to make recordings of roots music or to, to find a, a, a 
an outlet that's meaningful. Um, the the press that used to support records just really isn't there anymore. And you know, and thank you for your podcast because this is helping to get the word out too. Um, but um, it's uh, it's still here. And and the music is it is it still on a trajectory? Like there's so many great musicians who live there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, is it on a trajectory? I'm not sure. Is it is it music that kind of went back into the community where it were from whence it had come in the first place and is still nourishing the community in that way? I, I would say yes. And maybe those elements are here ready for I don't know, the next time that that trajectory calls upon it to be a part of of, of of where it's going. You know, it's, I think that's true with a lot of Roots music. If you think of Zydeco and Cajun music, there was that period in the 80s, especially when, you know, Popeyes had, uh, or, or McDonald's would have Zydeco music in their, in their commercials. And um, that movie, The Big Easy, and everybody was, black and redfish and Cajun food and everything else. And, and there, were, there were opportunities for a band like Beausoleil, especially to go out and tour all over the world. Now maybe the music has just gone back into the community that from, from whence it came in the first place. I think we are seeing a little bit um, the, um, oh, Louis Michaud and the Lost Bio Ramblers. There, there are some musicians in the, in the Cajun world in particular who are doing some pretty exciting things right now. Mm-hmm. Good to hear. Scott, thank you so much for doing this. It's, I loved your book, and, and thank you so much for taking this time. And, and I, I look at, I don't know if you see my CD collection back there, but <laughs> there's a lot with your name on it. So thank you very much for that. Yeah. And thank you for this. Oh, you're welcome.